We apologize for this brief interruption in the show. As many of you likely know, the Higher Standard Podcast is officially sponsored by Transcend Company. Transcend has been my longtime provider for both testosterone and peptide therapies, but they offer so much more. Whether you're interested in health, wellness, or longevity, it all begins with you getting your blood work done. A lab draw will help you get the numbers and establish your baseline. You can go to transcendcompany.com slash THSP. That's transcendcompany.com slash THSP. Or you can click the link in the show notes on any streaming platform and on YouTube. Fill out your information and one of the representatives will contact you to get your journey started today. Now back to the show. The cable was under my ass. The cable was under my ass. Let's go. Here we go. First thing everyone's going to hear when they start the show is the cable is under my ass. Come on, man. <laughs> Your hat's messed up. You want to fix it before the show starts? Does it have a yeah, head tattoo no, on this, this? It's like crumbled up here. Is it crumbled? Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Are you going to rock it the whole yeah, time? I don't mind. Fuck it. I'm, I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. Listen, listen, I came straight from the gym here. I, I stopped at home for like 10 minutes, said, honey, I love you, but not enough to stay. And then I left and came here. <laughs> I came straight from work here. So didn't have time. You went from work to work. Work to work. Yeah. Put in that back. work. Yeah, I know. Meanwhile, Odun. It's out here venture fucking lollygagging around and shit. PTO starting tomorrow. Buying Chinese food. Brought us Chinese food. Yeah, you know what that was, right? <laughs> what was that? That was a, I'm going on vacation, like, send off. <laughs> That's what I, Y'all can't get mad at me. <laughs> yeah. You know those, edit, those edits I was supposed to do, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm going on vacation, and uh, you're going to have to yeah, do all that. Figure it out. Yeah. I'm going to send it to you guys. It's just going to be me in a bikini with a margarita in my hand. <laughs> Actually, that, that thing's turned facing me. You fuck with me? No. It turns turn towards the wall. See, this is the problem with this place, man. It's like, we come in here like, no, no, no. Someone's, co- someone's coming someone's in here. Someone's fucking with us. Or your dad. Yeah, he's for sure. Dude, it's not even on the right. What is going on? It's all messed up, man. Okay, you know what? <sighs> Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> I can't. Like, the OCD. Come on. No, just... Nobody look at my ass. Everyone's looking at that ass. I know. Everyone's looking at my ass. All right. Should we start it over? No, we're going to keep going with that. Everybody needs some ass talk from time to time. Let's go. Welcome back to the number one financial literacy podcast. This is the higher standard, and that sitting to my right is the one and only partner in time, Said Omar. Oh, thank you, sir. Sitting next to me on my left is my partner in crime, Chris Nahibi. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And obviously, uh, interior decoration really matters to me. That's why I have to stop <laughs> mid-show and adjust the light. Yeah. And of course, behind the ones and twos, the man, the myth, the legend, the man who goes on more PTO than anyone you know, DJ Arun. Hello, everyone. Look at you. King of PTO, baby. Rapping on podcast now? Look at you. It all rhymed, too. Did it rhyme? Yeah. Right. Son I of a bitch. This even... doesn't make a sound, huh? Oh, it does. Oh. oh. <laughs> you got the we, big boys. <laughs> we have the, the, the tall boy monsters tonight, and they don't really make sexy sounds. No, they don't. Yeah. It, I'll, I'll edit some openings in for you or something yeah. if you want. Yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. Who's that? I didn't watch wrestling. Yeah. No, I know who it is. I just don't know the reference. You don't stop it. He does, man. He's fucking. With no, no. Him. I don't know what he did. Like, what was his thing? His intro music was glass shattering. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. I'm. Why are you upset that I don't know like that level of pop? No, culture? No, 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 no. That was like prime time, man. He's pop culture. You and I are the financial literacy people. That's true, but I. That's did, his job. But we grew up with that. No, you grew up with that because I'm a geriatric fuck. You're old. See, I'm. You're gonna say. Uh, see, you're gonna set me up. <laughs> I'm going to give you the shot first, Come on, okay? Boomer. Come on. How old was he for that? That was like, what, 98? You were what? Bro, I was 18, 17, man. He was 18, yeah. That's prime. 
No, when you're 18 years old, if you're watching WWE, <laughs> there's a question. Back then, it was there's, WWF for sure. No, it was Worldwide uh, World Wildlife Foundation. World Wrestling. That whole, that, no. It was WWF until like mid 2000s. That's why it changed because mm-hmm. mid 2000s. Worldwide World Wildlife Federation. Yeah, I don't, I don't, whatever. Yo, can we stick to the show? Can please? we please? Can we, Jesus, let's do Christ, this. I can't do anything with you guys anymore. Welcome back, everyone says. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I want great content. Can these guys deliver? Fuck yes, we can. Damn right we can. Stocks may crash 30%. A recession looks imminent, and commercial real estate is a bubble about to burst. I mean... We're going to get into a lot of scenarios and data from the one and only Gary Schilling. Mm. Don't know who Gary is? Don't worry, we got eight quotes from him, which will... Give you all you need to know about Gary. This guy's just been gathering information for the last like years. Like I'm gonna get all the the best predictions. I'm gonna group them together and comes out with his own predictions. I mean, some of them weren't that earth shattering, but since Gary decided that uh, he was gonna speak, I was gonna listen. Yeah, I mean, he's known for this kind of thing. Yeah, he's a little sassy. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's called he's referred to as the market prophet. I know the prophet. Jeez. Yeah. No pressure, my guy. I mean, I would think that Noriel Rabini would call himself the market Jesus. But uh, now that he's on the dark side of crypto and we can't really reference him as a friend of the show anymore, I'm very conflicted as to how I should refer to him. I, it, I'm still extremely hurt by that. Can I change his name from Dr. Doom to Dr. Dipshit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I do that? <laughs> Dr. Dipshit Noria Robini. <laughs> then we're going to pivot from that and talk about the U.S. housing market as we typically do has become an impossible mess. And for those of you who listen to the show, there's a lot of contradictions, a lot of speculation, and a lot of thoughts about what may or may not be happening in the future. Soft landing, hard landing, how will this affect home prices? Uh, Said and I have some very sound, safe, practical advice for you as to what you should expect moving forward. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show. All the way to the end, because uh, there are two things which I think are really, really, really important at the end of the show. Mm -hmm. Our last segment, which will be on the whole open AI debacle. Which, by the time you hear this, has probably even evolved even more because it is evolving rapidly. I mean, exactly. Yeah. From Friday till now, which is Monday, the, what's the date today? The 20th. Mm. Oh, my God. It, this this poor son of a bitch went to the richest son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was never poor. Yeah. I'm just, just going to go on a limb and just say, like, his variant of poor yeah. is probably a whole different level than yeah, our but variant I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Microsoft made him feel poor after what they're probably giving him now. It would be funny if he's like, you know what, guys, just pay me. I mean, they were paying me like a paltry ten million a year, or what, I mean, whatever it was. I don't even know. Just, just pay me that. Yeah, you know, I, will I don't get, need a salary increase. I'll give you that and stock, no problem. Yeah, I'm gonna be magnanimous about this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, you up there, market value like a trillion dollars or some obscure, crazy ass piece of shit like number in the middle of like a day. I mean, it was insane. Right. We'll get into all of it, and then uh, Saeed threw in an article just because Saeed wanted to say he contributed, and then we'll cap the show off. With a very special homage. We don't have reviews this week. So because we don't have reviews, you have to listen to this type of juvenile bullshit from us. Yeah, that's what you get. You deserve this. Yeah. This is what we do to you when you don't do for us what you need to do. Right. Okay. So what Chris didn't do your homework, kids. What Chris means by that for our podcast listeners out there, whether it's on Apple or Spotify, please go out there and leave us an honest five star review. Helps the show out a lot. We really would appreciate it. If you're also watching us over on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, hit that like button, and ring that notification bell. Do all the goody good. 
You don't like I it. I don't know why. That that's my moist. Now, now like that, that it word bothers you moist. that I get enjoyment out of it. That's what it is. It, it's like you get like this weird 1980s Tupac Shakur a, like rapping when he was like He never poppy. said goody good. That's no. not a that's not a nineteen eighty rap reference. <sighs> goody good? I oh, didn't pull it up. What did what did goody I'm pretty good sure begin? that was never a reference to anything. So, so that I I'm coining it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but you're not popular. Come on. That. Come on, you're let's not start popular that. enough. Goody good say. There's no way that comes There's up. No way. If you call someone a goody goody, you mean no. they behave extremely well in order to See, please people in clear, authority. Clearly, you are a goody goody. No, so he typed in goody good. It thinks you're saying goody goody, meaning because it hasn't been coined yet. So I'm coining no, it. It's there. Urban Dictionary number one. Oh. Fuck off, bro. No, no, no. Someone, Damn it. No. God. Someone who does. Wait, go down. No, that, no. no where is the one right below you were at? Right. This Come is on, goody man. good. Thank right you. there. Yes. Thank you, Odun. I appreciate you. Someone who has a favor for someone else solely motivated by what they may get in return. Not finishing the end. <laughs> see, see how, uh, see, uh, see, especially sex. Goody good. This is what you've been telling. This is why we're not getting reviews. Sexual undertones, baby. He, wow. He only washed her car because he thought she would step up with him. What a goody good. Sleep with him, bro. Like, well, I always puts it in the middle of the camera, so I can't read it. Step, so up. Like, Step up. Uh, with him. He's laughing so hard. <laughs> he puts it. In the, uh, he sounds. Uh, I apologize. I shouldn't. Just, uh, I sound like I can't read. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I got it. I said it. Edit. We're not editing that. Editing. Yeah, you are. No, you have not. to. You have to. <laughs> he only to... washed her car because he thought that she would sleep with him. What a goody good. Yeah. Number two. I did a goody good when I helped out that little girl find her puppy in front of her mother. No sexual undertone there. Okay, yeah, but that, I did the goody good. So okay, that one come probably. out, help out your boys on the higher standard, and give us the goody good. Yeah, I still don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're rolling with it. Yeah, I, I know. Oh my goody good and goodness! Stop it. Let's get into our boy Gary Schilling, the prophet. Wow. Okay. Well, Gary Schilling, who is one of many people who predicted uh, the Great Recession. And the housing bubble that subsequently co collapsed as part of it. Mm -hmm. He made a lot of money off betting against the markets back in the 07 08 period of time. Mm -hmm. He's back in the game, except this time he's even more salty than he was the first time. Also known for calling the recession back in 1969, too. Yeah, he is not young. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he is not uh, Gen Z. He's a, I've seen this thing that's about to happen once or twice in my lifetime. I'm, I'm predicting it's going to happen again. So he's got uh, a lot of years in this game. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has uh, eight thoughts that uh, you should consider when you try to frame your perspective of what the economy looks like today. So, so don't take our word for it. Take Gary Schilling's. Number one, it's fair to say that most forecasters on Wall Street are paid to be bullish. I know from personal experience that if you're bearish, even if you're correct, it's very detrimental to job security. That's why I set up my own firm many years ago to avoid that hazard. Thank you. Finally, somebody comes out and says it. He's basically saying, like, all of this rosy optimism and forward-thinking positivity around the markets helps people stay employed because that is the political spin that they want. Mm -hmm. So every time there's an opportunity for someone on CNBC or whatever news outlets you happen to frequent, and they sound all optimistic and rosy because some print came out and they're looking for the best possible rainbow scenario to a pot of gold— Right. It's in their economic best interest and their political interest to appease the people who control the markets and want this type of rhetoric out there for you, the consumer. Right. This 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 section of like entertainment news, right, is 
doesn't sell with fear. This isn't politics. This isn't the war on drugs. It's none of that, right? This is the economy. People don't want to hear, you know, the bearish terminology. Except if you're us, because we're assholes. Oh, we're just keeping it real. It looks like us and Schilling should be boys. All bearish all day. I'm look. All bearish. I'm still. All day. I'm still very much hurting over my last economist relationship failure. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting to get into a new relationship. I can't just jump into to Schilling. I'm still. I'm still trying to emotionally recover from the damage that Noriel Rabini did to me. I cannot believe this piece of shit. I that motherfucker. Yeah. Okay? By the way, to the listener out there who who sent that to me, you know this listener actually listens to the podcast with his two boys. One of them is 11 years old. Shout oh. out to Ali and Dean, the boys. Wow, I am so sorry, boys, Ali and Dean, for all the bad things I've said. Yeah, that's a special um, shout out for them. Perhaps we should make a, a, a PG-13 version where we bleep out pretty much every other word that we say. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> that. <laughs> it's only valuable contribution in two years. <laughs> well done. Number two from Mr. Schilling. Again, a quote, I've been of the opinion that stocks would decline about 30% to 40% peak to trough. Mm -hmm. You'd have a further decline of about 30% from here to get to that 40% overall decline. Schilling's forecast suggests that the S&P 500 could fall to around 2,900 points or its lowest level since the pandemic. And I've got a lot that I could say here, but rather than do that. What I'll say is the obvious immature thing. We told you so. <laughs> told you so. I mean, Jamie also said this. Mr. Diamond himself. Jamie Dimon. Jamie, Uncle Uncle Jamie, I should say. He called this out last year. I mean, several months ago. That it was going to bleed into 2024. Right? You think Jamie Dimon was running around as a kid telling everybody, my last name is a diamond. And his parents yeah. were like, no, it's a demon. It's a, de <laughs> it's a demon. Yeah. <laughs> it go from diamond to demon. Yeah. Yeah, um, real um, quick. He's like, no, no, no. No, mommy. mommy it's a diamond. It's a <laughs> It's a diamond, yeah. And there was an article that we had not too long ago on the show um, that I don't think I got to bring up this stat in it. It was about the Magnificent Seven, right? Those tech companies. Mm. And it said if and those companies, those seven, are in the S&P 500, right? And they literally carry about 70% of the S&P 500's average. Exactly. When you look at the first 10 months of this year, those seven companies have carried the S&P 500, right? So let me, let me break this down. For those of you who don't know about the S&P 500, the Magnificent Seven are Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. Mm -hmm. Now, they've always got some magical number for the top uh, stocks, but Magnificent Seven is what we're at now. Yeah. Uh, it used to be the Fang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Missed their opportunity at the Mang. Yeah. For when, Facebook when Meta to go to Meta. Name. And I really wish they would have had that Mang. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, but they didn't. So, that being said, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ Composite Index, frankly are largely influenced by these large companies. It's not an equal rate. I think it's um, uh, RSP or something. Like that. There's a separate index that's out there. Don't quote me. I don't remember the name. It's like RPS, RSP, something like that, that actually equally weights every company in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. And that looks much more grim than the S&P 500's number, which looks overwhelmingly positive because this small sector of large companies is doing well. Right. So to your point, when you remove those those seven companies out of the S&P 500 and you analyze the remaining 493, right? Mm -hmm. They actually S&P for the first 10 months falls below 2%, right? Whereas yep. when you add them in, the S&P is up 52% year to date for the first 10 months. I don't know where we're at now, but that's what the article cited. Look so, at the, that look at that drop off. Up 52% versus 
down 2%. And, I, and when one of the things I've been talking about a lot, uh, actually a journalist and I were having this exchange in, in the DMs uh, about me thinking there's more room to go down in both the stock market and the real estate market. So like, well, where would you put your money now? And I would say, well, I'd hold cash. And I know that's a very untraditional, unorthodox thing to say, because typically speaking, you don't want to hold cash unless, unless your rate of return on your cash is higher than the current rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. In which case, it is. Currently, right. Right now it is, yeah. Inflation is approximately 3.2%. Mm-hmm. The headline figure, yep. But core inflation, 4%. And your rate on some, even high-yield savings accounts, is north of 5%. Mm-hmm. So this is the time to hold cash, kids. Yes. Because cash is king. Whereas in normal times, cash flow is king. Always mistaken. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, they, they, really, they really focus on net worth. Yeah. I would love to see a Forbes-like billionaire list but for top earners like in the year regardless they always do it like highest paid nba athletes or highest paid athletes yeah yeah I'll, and it's easy to do that because they have guaranteed contracts and endorsements and, and stuff. their salaries are out there to the public i would just like to see like highest earners out of the billionaires mm. like who really made the most money this year mm. very different perspective You're right we're never gonna see that probably not yeah number three the fed was very much late to the party you don't say gary I mean, I've heard that before. You mean they showed up late? Yeah. Were they drunk? <laughs> like a year and a half late? I think Gary thinks so. Mm. They had a huge credibility problem. And I think that's a strong reason they've decided that they are going to kill inflation. So what do you think? they? So explain to the people that maybe, maybe don't understand what he means by they showed up late. So there were early indicators going into what I would call the pandemic era that inflation was already starting to get out of control and that we already had a bit of a financial problem. But we went into this unprecedented pandemic with unprecedented economic stimulus, things like PPP loans, everybody getting a stimmy check. It put a lot of cash in companies and in the individual savings accounts of most Americans. Yep. The average savings in America went up egregiously, and that has now been mostly depleted, if not entirely depleted by the time you hear the show. So we've seen the Fed go, oh, shit, should we, should we start doing things now and compound these problems that are going on in the economy? So they chose not to act. By some accounts, a year and a half to two years too late. Yeah, and when and when asked about it, because remember these Fed meetings that we routinely citing every few months, right? Or these conferences that Jerome Powell is attending and he's being asked these questions. These were going on before this this was a problem. So when he was getting asked questions, he actually came out and said, "Oh no, this this current inflationary market that we're in, it's transitory. It's gonna yeah. it's come and it's gonna go it right. Comes and it goes. It's gonna go right past us." And he tried to blame the supply chain issue, right? Yeah, come on. And and because of you know everything that was going on in the pandemic, but he was wrong. Well, yeah, and uh, according to Gary, they realized that if they don't. Their credibility will be very seriously impaired, and they'll have a much tougher time later. Yeah. I would argue, uh, counter a bit to Gary's current position, the Fed has already lost credibility on some level, and that they haven't done a good job communicating why they have taken the tact that they have. And maybe, to his point, the reason is because they don't want to admit that they made some mistakes in reacting too late. So what do you think are some some risks associated with them losing credibility? I mean, at the end of the day, they do con- control the money supply. Now, they would, I guess, face some political pressures, but they theoretically shouldn't, right? If you lose faith in the governing body, if you will, of monetary policy, fiscal policy, really controlling inflation and unemployment, then you would think we could face things like runaway employment numbers, runaway inflation numbers, and you don't have the confidence that this group of people who are supposed to get together as a collaborative think tank can actually control the economy. 
So part of what they have to do is project this confidence in their decision-making and in some ways not address their lateness to the party until such time as they're past this and the consumer can say, you know what, the Fed got the job done. Then they'll unpack all the problems. But mid-game, no one's going to be like, listen, man, I told you to pass the ball, dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. You, the last thing you need is for people to lose faith in the system that's holding everything together. Yeah, so there's a, there's a big credibility problem kind of already brewing there, but Let's move on to Gary's fourth point, shall we? Let's do it. There's a growing realization that the Fed is serious. Oh, well, okay. That they're going to kill inflation. That recession is probably the price of that. And that the Fed is restoring its credibility. Okay, so I would agree the Fed is working very hard to restore its credibility from possibly acting too late. And I do think his point is well taken. A recession is a is probably is a probably if more than probable. More probable than not, I would say, the price of the Fed acting the way they've acted. Now, I will say in the Fed's defense, I think a recession was unavoidable anyway, because let's be honest, let's, let's zoom out 100 years, okay? Going 50 years backwards and 50 years forwards, all right? Hopefully we're still alive. Oh, yeah. I hope I see you there. Yeah. <laughs> you got greater <laughs> odds than I do, bro. I don't know. <laughs> Unless you go to transcendcompany.com slash THSP, and get on their longevity package like I'm on. We need you to go over there. Just talk to somebody over there. Yeah, I don't know when. Oh, they're going to hit this after Black Friday, aren't they? Yeah, because there are some Black Friday specials out there. There are, there are some Black Friday specials. If you missed out on that, you can still get some pretty good deals, but you're going to have to go to transcendcompany.com slash THSP, fill out the application, have somebody reach out to you, and get seen for all the good stuff. Or as Saeed says, the goody good. The goody good. That goody good link is in the show notes below. And any platform that you're on. But um, I do think that, if you span backwards 50 years and span forwards 50 years, recessions are an inevitable part of a natural and healthy volatility in the economy. People hate that. They're like, oh, Chris, you're wishing this on people. Like, you want it to happen. And I said, no, good and bad, right? Uh, yin and yang, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You got to have good times to appreciate the bad times. You got to have, you can't have all positive growth and, and go, 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 go up. Otherwise, wages typically don't keep up with the growth in the economy. How do you bring the growth in the economy back down to wages and, and balance things out? You got to have a recession, right? I, and I think that that word recession has a very huge negative connotation to it, right? Yeah. So I mean, w typically what it's what it's supposed to mean, even though the government decided to change the definition, Bastards. is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It doesn't need to be massive amounts of negative GDP growth, right? Ideally, what the Fed is trying to accomplish here is somewhat of a softer landing, meaning uh, you know a softer recession. But to Chris's point, and to Mr. Schilling's point here, 11 out of the last 14 times the Fed has raised rates, it's caused a recession, mm -hmm. right? So, and whether they're able to accomplish a softer recession or not, that that job is too difficult. You can't predict that. First of all, what's a softer recession? Yeah. I guess if unemployment doesn't spike up to, you know, you know egregious levels. What's an egregious level? It, it's all it's all perspective based. I mean, yeah. I mean, ten percent like you, you, yeah, like happened in the Great Recession. That. Okay, that's that, that's a hard that's a hard recession. You can say that, but here's the problem. Okay, yeah. If you get laid off, whether unemployment's five percent or eight percent, yeah, that shit don't matter to you. It's still hard for you. Yeah, for me, it's hard. Yeah. So we're we're bastardizing the impact to the individual. Yes. By saying, well, I mean, only eight percent are unemployed, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that sucks for you, man. I know it's just a numbers game at that yeah, point. I know you're having a tough time finding a job in the mortgage business, but overall, yeah. the economy is healthy. Just change, you know, businesses. <laughs> that's fucked up, but that's what we're telling people. I know. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, 
whole idea of a recession to me is, is funny how it's been stigmatized. But if you go back to the White House's original explanation, and I'll boil it down to a quick, like, one-minute explanation, they said, no, 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 America, two negative quarters of successive GDP growth um, is typically a recession. But this time, not the case, because gross domestic income and gross domestic product weren't both negative. As a matter of fact, gross domestic income was going up. And GDP was going down. So because of this one caveat slash asterisk slash tiny little footnote at the bottom that nobody ever read, we're not technically in a recession. Yeah. I think the National Bureau of Economic Research is going to come out and likely to be even in the fourth quarter of this year. I think before the year's end, there's a possibility. If, if not, definitely Q1 next year, I think we're going to see something from them. And they're going to say, look, uh, while we agree that those trends were moving in opposite directions, we think the gross domestic income was actually not propped up by any natural cause that it was the likely outcome of people having multiple jobs, working from home, uh, unprecedented stimulus, uh, you know, PPP loans, mm -hmm. government-backed GDI. So if you remove the government involvement in this and you go for natural, organic, economic gross domestic income, mm -hmm. those numbers were likely going to go down or were going down in conjunction with GDP. Therefore, it, it should be a declared a recession as of January 1, 2022. And we've been in a prolonged recession ever since. And it was much cheaper back then to borrow money, right? Which ultimately stimulated the economy even more so, where conditions should have been even tighter, right? Because we said the Fed acted late. So the rates should have already been creeping up by mm -hmm. then. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that that's the unfortunate part. So uh, number five to this point from Gary. We're on a first name basis now. Gary, Gare. To... come on, Gare. Come on, Gare Bear. We probably do have a recession coming shortly if we're not already in it. Oh, Gary, <laughs> stop <laughs> flirting with me. <laughs> He's tickling my fancy. Okay, fine. You can be my new Noriel. <laughs> Nobody rings the bell. If you look at many of the major indicators that are reliably forerunners of a recession, when you look at that combination of things, it's pretty hard to escape a recession. Schilling pointed out, and I'm going to say we've pointed these things out before, the inverted yield curve, mm -hmm. leading economic indicators, and the Fed's crusade against inflation as some of the key reasons he expects a recession. Yep. If we're not already in one. If we're not already in one. Because Gary sense. and I are on the same wavelength. Our romance has now blossomed. Yeah, exactly. You guys are past the dating phase. We get it. Yeah. You're on your way to first base. Oh, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm more of a second date closer. <laughs> Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's your style, huh? <laughs> Number six, maybe when the Fed finally does see the footprints on the ceiling, which I thought was a really weird reference, by the way. The footprints on the ceiling. That's what he said. I mean, I'm not So when people are upside down, is that what he means? I don't know what he's trying to say. And starts to cut rates, it could come with a lot more speed. But it could be well into next year before they finally see enough evidence of a weak economy and inflation cut back. I doubt that unless something breaks. Mm. Cutting rates at a faster speed, I think rates are going to get cut at a slower pace than, than how they actually rose. And uh, his next uh, part of the statement, I also disagree with as well, to lower rates and make a decided shift from credit tightness to ease. I don't think we're going to see credit easing even after the Fed begins to cut rates. I think that you're going to wind up seeing lending rates, mortgage rates, be slow to respond down, but deposit rates be quick to move down. Yes. Banks are going to look to recoup their profitability, but it's okay. You don't have to agree with your partner in every relationship. Gary and I are still very much in love. We just agree to disagree on this topic. Right. I like that. I like yeah. that approach. You know, it's we're, I'm trying to be more amenable 
to my economist boyfriend's relationships. You hear out his opinion, he needs to hear out our opinion, and we yeah. agree to disagree. I mean, Noriel was a playboy. You know you're not going to settle down with playboy, right? <laughs> Number seven. Can't turn a hole into a housewife, bro. Come on. The glasses were a giveaway. <laughs> you know? I he, No, it was the hot tub. No, the hot the, tub the hot for tub, me. It could have been like a Huberman thing, right? No. You went from the hot tub to the, to the cold plunge. We know who was in the hot tub. <laughs> we know. <who laughs> There's pictures the everywhere hot. online. <laughs> Noriel, who's this? Come on, Noriel. <laughs> God damn you, Rubini. Uh, what was amazing to me was when it just seems so obvious that this was an unbelievable bubble that a lot of people believed it. A lot of people did believe it. Yeah, they did. It was just so extreme, but it took a long time for people to realize that. Why? Well, you see what happened. All the big banks had to be bailed out, the mortgage lenders and so on, and a lot of blood on the floor. There were a lot of people who believed in free lunch. He was reflecting on the mid-2000s housing bubble and subsequent crash. He said he made 20 times his money with the help of hedge fund manager John Paulson. And uh, you know what? Honestly, Gary, this is the part of, about your personality that really bothers me in our relationship. I mean, honestly, it's very arrogant. You don't need to say you made 20 times your money. I mean, you you could have just said I made a lot. Who says that? You got Why is it got to be 20? That's wild. Gary. 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 Honestly, I mean, did he say this at the Centurion Lounge? Is that is that where he said it? Every show. Where, where, Every show. You just where was he being interviewed at? Is that was that disclosed? Does he have a black card? That's what I want to know. No, I'm for sure he's got a J.P. Morgan Palladium. Has to. By the way, I went to, I went to lunch with with some J.P. Morgan people from their their capital markets. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot to ask you about that. And I was sitting down, and and they were lovely hosts, and and one of them paid the bill, and I'm like, hmm. she goes, what's up? What's what's wrong? And I'm like, no Palladium. Tell Uncle Uncle Jamie to uh, you know. No, you did it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> they were all like, <laughs> they're like, hey, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they, they probably went back to the car like, fuck, he's right. Tell him I said he's a demon. Uh. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you should tell him I'll hook you up. I'll call Jamie. Yeah, I mean, you need one? I got you. Yeah, you got ten million in assets? No problem. <laughs> yeah. Number eight and Gary's final point. I think the biggest bubble right now is commercial real estate. Mm. Resounding and reoccurring theme, we, we will tell you. Uh, we see that all over the markets, it is the most talked about thing. And I think there's some truth there, uh, certainly. This isn't of the magnitude of the subprime mortgage bonanza, but I think it's a bubble which is beginning to crack. I would agree. I don't Should, know, man. I think I think it might be. I think it might be that big. On the level of? Yes. See, I don't think it has. So there's commercial mortgage-backed securities, the CMBS market. Yes. For those of you who don't remember the Great Recession, was really kind of kicked off in the cataclysmic breakdown of what was then the hybridized, securitized, synthetic pools of mortgage-backed securities. So single-family residence loans pooled together and sold in the secondary market. The reason why they were called synthetic was they took different credit profiles from different companies who managed and underwrote things differently. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the semantics. Mushed them all together and said they all have the same aggregate risk. Now behind those are stated income, no, you know, no doc, no this, no that. If you have a pulse, you get a loan kind of loans. Throwing them all together, selling them off into the Wall Street, and then they 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 started to fail. Right for for people that you know don't know much about that era back then, you used to be able to get loans by just stating your income. You have a pulse. Here's a loan for you. Here's here's a loan. But maybe just is there a way for you to? Because I'm sure you've spoken about this so many times. Um, explain to people. I don't think they understand the securitization aspect of it. Like I didn't know that for a long time prior to me getting into this industry that you could actually invest in something like that. 
Yeah, so th those are typically traded on the secondary market. That, that's actually the uh, off-balance sheet mechanism for a lot of companies, banks included. Um, so typically, let's just look at it. Um, the most common way is through uh, a trust. But um, for all intents and purposes, let's say, Saeed, you own a mortgage company, mm -hmm. right? Or you have a mortgage division of a bank, right? And you go out and you make $100 million in loans, right? And you underwrite them to agency guidelines. So Freddie or Fannie, which are government-sponsored enterprises, GSEs. Yes, they have, you know, kind of minimum criteria, uh, an instruction booklet, if you will, of how to make a loan. But why would you need to follow their guidelines? Well, if you follow their guidelines, you can pull them together and sell them into a security. Into so basically, you pull them all together, all hundred million, and you can sell them off to Wall Street as a securitization, as a security that someone can buy like a stock, mm -hmm. right? They're buy and sell and traded. And because you follow those GSEs, those government-sponsored enterprises, they're actually backed by the government. Right, and I would want to do that personally because I want to recoup some of my money and to go make more loans. Right, now you can also buy non-government-backed securities. And again, I'm, I'm taking a very complicated industry and watering yeah. it down. There's a lot of accounting vernacular, technicality, legal structure. There's all sorts of intermediaries or special servicers, things that are not important for most people listening to the show. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, you, back then, you could have stated income, non-government-backed stuff, and they would put it together in a pool with other state income, non-government backed book stuff. So let's say Arun is another lender who's got $100 million and he doesn't follow the same underwriting guidelines you do, not the government-sponsored GSE stuff that he's just out there doing whatever he wants. Yeah. And you guys put those together in a $200 million pool and you securitize them, right? You turn them into a security mm -hmm. and then people buy that security on Wall Street because it gives a high return. Yes. And the reason why it gives a higher return is because these are perceived to be riskier loans because they're stated income. They're not full documentation. And so loans. long as all the people in that pool are paying their mortgages, then people will get their return. Yeah, but if you don't pay your mortgages? Or if there seems to be a sudden crash? Yeah, then uh, I would say those people who hold those assets, they get uh, the reach around. <laughs> the what? The reach around. Oh, what's that one? Where someone reaches around and grabs the money from your wallet. Oh. See, because you're nasty. <laughs> nasty. You think nasty things. Nasty boy. Because you're nasty, Ray. <laughs> Why you got to say nasty shit, Ray? Because <laughs> I'm a nasty motherfucker. You set me up. I had to say it. You had to say it. I didn't want to. So, yeah, that from Business Insider was uh, an interesting article. I found it to be eight points that were um, probably abrasive if if you uh, you just heard it from Gary Schilling just for the first time. But I would say, despite the fact that a lot of people like him that can be um, a little more pessimistic are out there, a lot of his points are well well thought out and true. I, I feel like a majority of what he mentioned were all the sounding alarms that are all flashing red. Yeah, but and people want to ignore them. People want to ignore them. But when you look at all them together like this, it's you, you have to think it's unavoidable. A, re a recession, not just a soft recession, a hard one, is unavoidable. That's what, it's, that's what it seems like. By the way, off topic, but Arun, I was thinking about this the other day. That Reading Rainbow thing you sent me with DMX rapping over it was so incredibly bad. I listened to it in the bathroom, and it actually played while I was going number two audibly, and it was wildly inappropriate. It was so bad, <laughs> so bad. Like you got, you got to send me like a NSW, whatever that is, not yeah. safe for work. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I do. I make sure I do that. You got, you got to oh, give me the heads sense. up, bro. Okay. I'll do I was that like, over. it's reading Rainbow, and I don't know about somebody here in Lavar Burton. I'm like, nope, I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was wildly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for setting me up, bro. I pooped myself so fast. Uh, let's go on to the next article. Yeah, let's do this. Gary, Gary got enough of this time. He got a lot of, he was the A block tonight. Yeah, I know. A block was all Gary. All Gary. Your love interest. Uh, my love interest, yeah. B block is going to be business week. The U.S. housing market has become an impossible mess. I inc included a lot here. I thought there was some great context. 
feel free to tell me to shut up midway through it. But uh, there is a shout out to my boy Glenn Kellerman in this one. Mm. Redfin CEO. We love him. Just straight gangster, bro. Love him. Yeah, he he's just such good. You know what he he's does? He's what Zillow should be. He keeps it a buck. Yeah. Keeps it 100. Uh, keeps it 100. I not speak your language. All facts. Yeah, no cap. Bars. Yeah. What he's what he basically is is if you took Zillow and made them attractive, you would have Glenn. Right. No, if you took if you took Zillow, right? And you just ripped off all the makeup that Zillow was wearing. Oh, yeah. You know? But but still extremely beautiful. Just yeah. just honest. Zillow's got a butt implant. That's what we're trying to say. That, yeah, it's got a BBL. Yeah, it's BBL. Well, is Redfin is naturally beautiful. Natural. Yeah. Na- you know, natural beauty needs to come back. Have you ever heard anybody say they like they they like they're into the Brazilian butt lift thing? No. Nobody. No, I don't talk to anybody about Brazilian butt lifts. You, okay, stop. I know your wife listens to the show. Oh. I'm just saying, like, you never. Have you ever? I'm being dead serious. I don't never, know. I don't. You've never heard anybody like say like I like that. No, we. I've never. I've legitimately never spoken to somebody about a Brazilian butt lift. But I know I've definitely heard people say like, oh, I like girls with, you know. Is that what they mean by big butts though? Because I feel like a Brazilian butt lift's different. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously natural ones and there's fake ones. So the Brazilian butt lift is fake, right? I mean, it's, it's not, re- it, it looks really awkward when it's fake. It, it doesn't look normal. Yeah. God, God bless my wife. We'll be out and about, okay? And she'll say, oh my God. Look at her butt. It's massive. No, 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 no. My wife does that too. And I'll say, nope, nope, nope. I'm not, not doing shit. it. And, she, and she I know like, what a trap smells like. You passed. Smells like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> trap all over it. Or my wife will be like, do you think Kim Kardashian's butt looks real? I have no I idea. I don't know what Kim Kardashian's butt yeah, looks like. She's got a butt? I didn't know that. I've heard rumors that it looks strange. Yeah. But I cannot confirm or deny these rumors. Can't. I don't know. I can't look at her ever since, you know, I, I just, I have no respect for her, okay? <laughs> <laughs> what she's done to the culture. The cult, I mean, she's, what did you do to Kanye, Kim? <laughs> yeah, I want the old Kanye. That's so good. God. And then the music just went left. Yeah. Uh, it's not her fault. He was crazy. All right. Uh, so from the article, a stubbornly strong economy threatens to keep mortgages expensive for years. Modestly cheaper loans would only unlock pent-up demand, sending prices even higher. And I do worry about that. It is definitely a possibility. If that we a cut lot rates of- too soon, say goodbye to affordability. If exactly that's why it needs to be a slow, gradual process, and it probably will be. Yeah, probably will be. Uh, the kind of economic collapse that might bring rates down faster would also make buying harder, and home builders are grappling with limited supply of labor, land, and materials. Mm-hmm. From a man, Glenn, the man who's got a natural good booty, <laughs> he does. He, he seems like he's a hiker. Got that hiking booty. We took it too far. Sorry. It's like we fired all the bullets we have on housing affordability, and it's going to take a long, long time to build our way out of it, said Glenn Kelman. What do you think he means by that? Chief Executive Officer at Red uh, Brokerage Redfern uh, Corp. What I think he means by it is simply what he means by it. I think he means that in order to get the supply back in the market, mm-hmm. to meet the uh, demand and hence drop the affordability uh, back into a closer to normal range. Mm -hmm. You're just going to need to have more housing supply come on. I think he's talking about building his way out of it. So the builders need to build more home, more deliveries to the market. I think there are other ways, but he's hoping to avoid those other ways. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe also that it would, the amount of supply that would need to come online, if we're solely relying on home builders, it's going to take an extremely long time because they can't build enough homes Fast enough. Yeah. It, it's it's unreasonable to expect that to be a solution. Yeah. 
But his next sentence is very telling, and this is kind of one of the things we've alluded to in the wiping out of the potential middle class, creating a working class and a uber-wealthy class, uh, because most Americans have their wealth that comes from their home values, their equity appreciation over time. If you eliminate the ability for the next generation to buy a home, and look, I don't, I, we have this negative connotation of Gen Z as being like lazy. I don't think Gen Z is lazy. I just think they are so frustrated with the ability, lack of ability to buy a home that they've given up on that conquest for now to focus on other things because they know it's just unreasonable. I think Gen Z also is more informed than previous generations. Oh yeah, TikTok will let you know. They let they they, they and they'll trust everybody. Anything that yeah, anything, that, pop, anything that pops off with a, with a thousand likes, they're like, oh okay, I got I got to believe that. The disinformation is so high, but I mean there there's some good information there. Yeah. So uh, Glenn's next comment: It's going to strain the social fabric of America that younger generation isn't able to buy a home anytime soon. The social fabric. Social fabric. The American dream, if you will. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness originally meaning home ownership. Mm -hmm. Because I write constitutions in my spare time. <laughs> you do? No. Okay. University of California at Berkeley economist John Quigley in the 1980s identified the lock-in effect. Mm. When you have super low rates, lots of mortgages, rates spike up, you have what's known as a lock-in effect, kids. Right. That came from your boy John Quigley. It would basically, with the people having such low mortgage rates and with rates are where they are now, they're locked into this low mortgage rate. 90% of home owners have a mortgage rate of 6% or less, 60% at 4% or less. Mm -hmm. Why in the world would I sell my home and go pay thousands of dollars more getting a new home? And that question is exactly why we're reading these long-ass quotes tonight. Because this will identify the trend and talk about what happened in the late 70s and early 80s to help resolve the lock-in effect. Okay. Are you ready? Let's go. Are you strapped in? Strapped in. Is your seat table and it's locked in upright position? Now it is. Let's go. Arun, are you still eating back there? <laughs> no, he's not. Nope. For he's sure. being good. He's being good. Okay. I could, your, your throat, you didn't have to clear your throat on that one. I'm proud of you. The last episode, there was only one, and it was like an intentional one. Oh. Yeah. What do you mean, intentional one? Like he did it to fuck with me. Oh, I got him to speak. He's like, no. <laughs> He's, He's like, like, no, I didn't. Come on, I'm trying so hard yeah. back here. Jesus. All right, the identified lock-in effect, which he said was preventing many Americans from selling their homes. Mortgage rates had spiked from 9% in 1978 to 18% in 1981, leaving millions of households with older mortgages paying what amounted to below market rates. Buying a new home meant a more expensive loan, adding substantial cost, a powerful disincentive to moving. And to frame this, even though you went from 9 to 18% in 1981, affordability was still worse today than it was then because you also had way higher home prices now relative to wages then. Right. The, the gap, the disparity between the two with how much you're making versus how much a home costs was far less then than it is now. So even though rates were so high, affordability now is actually way worse and at its all-time worst. Yeah. Moving on, as interest rates fell, Quigley's work was largely forgotten until a little thing called COVID-19 hit. Mm. The U.S. housing market shut down briefly in 2020 along with the rest of the economy before a combination of stimulus payments and plunging borrowing costs set off a boom unlike anything we had seen in a generation. The average rate on a 30-year mortgage fell to a record low of 2.65% in January of 2021. Existing home sales reached an annual pace of $6 million for the first time in 14 years, and realtors everywhere were bawling out of control. Also hard. I may have added that part to the quote. <laughs> Work from anywhere policies had house hunters lining up for viewings from far from the coastal areas that had been most popular before the pandemic. 
The Federal Reserve's tightening campaign quickly cooled demand. It cooled supply even more, though, because of Quigley's lock-in effect. These days, most existing mortgage rates, as Said pointed out earlier, are below 4%, roughly half the cost of a new 30-year loan. Mm -hmm. The large spread is likely to reduce the rate at which homeowners move by more than a quarter over the next decade, according to estimates from Julia Fonseca of the University of Illinois and Lou Louis of the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, man. I mean, if people really believe that we're at the top of this rate cycle and they see and mortgage rates are where they are, I could see why they start to pull back. But in the months leading up to this point, you saw people were still out there buying, right? Because maybe they thought mortgage rates still had room to go. I don't have this in the show notes, but uh, I did a little digging. Typically speaking, in a healthy economy, about 25%, believe it or not, 25% of home purchases are all cash offers. I did not know that. Yeah. All cash? 25% in a normal house. It lasts like several. Like, so, for example, in 20, 2020 to 2021-ish, I want to say it's about 25%. Okay. We are quickly approaching today over 30%. Because it's more investor money? Uh, there's a number of, of impacts. I think largely because so many of the boomers walked into massive wealth in their property. So even though it's taking longer for them to sell in this current market, mm -hmm. they can still command highest dollars. Yeah. So they're selling their property, taking all this massive equity, buying in cash, pocketing some if they can. So there's a lot more of that because there's so much equity built in these homes, which goes to show you there's another warning sign that how far out of whack we are, right? Right. I mean, some of these people bought their home for like $5 and some peanuts and now selling it for $1.2 million. Yeah. Turn around, they buy all cash. Well, now not only are you buying all cash because you have this unprecedented rise in home value, but now no one can compete with you. Exactly. Yeah. If you're buying all cash, there's no contingencies for loans. The seller gets to close quicker. It's more of a sure thing. I mean, it's it's crazy. One third of home buyers are paying in cash. Who are they? This article from K Ron Four. K Ron Arun. What the fuck is this? Is this like from a different planet? Oh, it's just a news network. Oh, okay. Real estate brokerage Redfin found that 33.4% of buyers opted for an all-cash deal in April. This is April of 23. The highest uh, that mark uh, has been since 2014. You know, a, a lot of first-time home buyers who are getting help from their parents. Thank you, Arun. Yes, they are actually 40%. Yeah. 40% was the number that I read recently. God damn, I'm on fire tonight. Damn, you, yeah. Just, we come in an hour and a half earlier. Look at you. Fucking go time, baby. Let's go. Uh, we may have to change the show time. And I slept like five hours last night. I'm gassed. Oh, me too. I'm ready to go. Are you? That's that's a lot for me. Five You're hours. over here being all sad and shit. I'm I'm like, let's go, baby. <laughs> Five hours. Yeah, is tap a lot. me in. And I had my testosterone shot before I came in. That explains yeah, it. No, that's it, what it, it is. It takes, it takes a while to kick in. I usually take two days to, to get, like to peak. Okay. So if you want to come over to the house on Wednesday, I'll hook you up, brother. Let's go. Now let's get to the climax of the show. Oh, I've been waiting for this. Oh my god, this is where this Ooh. is the meat, meat and potatoes. And it's a big potato. <laughs> yeah. Right. All the fixings. Oh, Thanksgiving's around the corner. Mashed right. potatoes. It is, man. And my wife's going untraditional this year. She's doing some different stuff. Yeah? Yeah. She's, she does a lot of, she likes to mix it up. My wife cooks her ass off, but um, I think she's doing like this chicken thigh and pea thing, which is incredible. Okay. I'm not a big chicken thigh person, but the way it's like crispy, but it has like this, oh, it's very good. Okay. I think we're going braised short ribs. Braised short ribs. Yeah. That's haram. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Don't lie to the people. I just learned how to use that word, so I'm, just, I'm throwing it out all the time. It's haram. Ha what? Haram. I thought a harem was a bunch of women. <laughs> no. What? This language is very confusing. It's very confusing. You got to clear this it's up. It's going to get a lot of people in trouble. Is a uh, harem haram? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the way you say it, yes. When it comes out of your mouth. What if you said haram haram? <laughs> that means something? 
It has to. Okay, just checking. All right, well. Okay, the Wall Street Journal. Holy shit. When I put this article in, the situation was a lot different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this shit evolved quickly. A lot has developed. So, OpenAI, ChatGPT's parent company. Mm. Well, they fucked around and found out. And uh, if you've been hearing a lot about this in the news, and you're like, Chris, I don't understand. What the fuck? Uh, we're going to break it down. How is this possible? How did this happen to this guy? So, within 24 hours... OpenAI investors try to get Sam Altman back as CEO after a sudden firing. Mm -hmm. Co-founder of Artificial Intelligence Company, and by the way, his other co-founder, uh, who was the president of the company, he left. I think he was the chief technology officer. Uh, I don't know what the hell he was, but uh, we'll get into the, the quotes here from the article. But uh, he was fired from ChatGPT by the board. Now, the board is structured very, very, very differently. But to be clear, Sam is very respected. He is like the godfather of AI. He's given birth to artificial intelligence. It's, it's his baby. And ChatGPT was one of, if not the fastest growing tech platforms in the world. There was a reason why he made an appearance on Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. Yeah, he was out there doing Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And uh, yeah, so he got billions and billions of dollars, a little under $14 billion from its largest investor, which happened to be Microsoft. Mm, look at that. A little company that happens to be very, very heavily invested in this particular type of technology. Mm -hmm. So we're going to read a little bit here. Just note that some things have evolved since then. And I have a conspiracy theory. And then I want to talk to you all about corporate governance. Yes. Very important. But all this can be yours if the price is right. Yeah. Look at you. Shout out to Bob Barker, man. I miss God. him. R.I.P. Yeah. What a stud. A stud. And no disrespect to his replacement. But uh, Bob Barker was better. Well, Drew, right? What's his name? Drew Carey. Drew Carey. That's right. Yeah. Bob Barker's better. Way better. Yeah. All right. So most tech founder CEOs own equity in their companies and report to a board filled with representatives of their investors to help ensure that decisions are made in the best interest of the shareholders. Altman and his co-founders purposely created a structure in which neither of these things were true. Right. So if you've ever heard Chris say on the show that people in this in this position, executives at you know these organizations have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. Yeah. What they mean is I got to do what's in the best interest of the shareholders of the company. Correct. And if you have a, like, for example, our company or Sam's company, uh, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors and shareholders alike. However, if you're publicly traded, right, that's anybody who buys a single share of your stock. That's also the reason why if you buy one share of Berkshire Hathaway, you can attend all of their investor conferences that they go to. You and can go to their shareholder, annual shareholder meetings. A lot of people do, right? They just buy one share because well, they, they want to be able to go. And they're incredibly expensive in that case. But yes, you get insight into this and they owe you, even as one share, you could buy a share of $4 stock mm -hmm. of a company and they owe you a fiduciary responsibility. So, And th this is the key part about this whole situation that happened and we'll, we'll, de we'll definitely get into it, is that it's very hard to determine what is in the best interest of the shareholder, especially in uncharted territories. Yeah, uh, and look, I, there's there's clearly a, a backstory here we don't know. Again, I do have a theory here, mm -hmm. and I will share with you, but you have to keep it amongst us friends. Yeah, just right here. Circle of trust. Circle of trust. All right. So OpenAI was founded originally as a nonprofit in 2015. Most people don't know that, okay? And he really only tried to push for profitability with the for-profit chat GPT because he knew that he could take the funds from that for-profit enterprise and dump it into the research. AI is very, very expensive. The technology, the infrastructure behind it is very, very expensive. And it requires a lot 
to run this type of computing power. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the development and all the things we've seen since that time. So Altman created a commercial arm for OpenAI four years later in 2019, shortly after he became the chief executive to allow the company to raise billions. Billions. That's a lot of millions, okay? <laughs> That's a lot of millions. Of dollars it needed to fund training of its AI models. Okay? Again, number one investor, Microsoft. Mm -hmm. However, that commercial arm was still governed by a nonprofit parent. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, for the record, normally speaking, if you're going to be the largest investor, you want a board seat. Microsoft believed in this so much, they invested just under $14 billion and did not get a board seat. This nonprofit operated this. Now, in theory, you could argue that the nonprofit had more of a social, moral, ethical focus. At least that was probably Sam's hope when he left them in charge because AI does pose some interesting human challenges, right? A lot. What could happen if AI evolved? Could it become aware? Could it become self-aware? Mm -hmm. Could it feed into you know the stuff that Terminator... I don't want to see Arnold Schwarzenegger come back as a Terminator. I robot. It could be that too. Yeah. There's we've seen all the movies. Yeah. A room could probably quote six of them. There's two camps here. Only two. There's a camp that believes that AI is moving at an extremely fast pace mm -hmm. that desperately needs regulation. And that was in part the nonprofit boards rumored back and the, the the problem is they haven't said a whole lot. That is certainly part of their decision to get rid of Sam. Right. And the other group here are what they like to call themselves techno-optimists that believe the momentum is going and we need to keep our foot on the pedal and keep pushing this thing forward. Right? Because they feel like that's what's in the best interest of, you know, this technology. Well, uh, so instead, OpenAI is governed by the nonprofit board, only a minority of which were allowed to have a financial stake in the company at any given time, according to the company's bylaws. So they don't have a lot of ownership in the underlying company. Right. They're there in a different capacity than most boards. They're there to really, and keep in mind, a board of directors job is not to manage the day-to-day -day of a company. Their job is the strategic oversight, the master planning and making sure they have checks and balances in place for the, for the management. So for example, myself, as an executive at a publicly traded institution, the board's responsibility is ensuring that I am executing on the broader strategic plan that, that we've all agreed upon and that I'm you know, doing my job as a fiduciary for the company. So how much nuance do they actually get into, if at all, and if any at all? It varies depending on what type of industry it is, how highly regulated it is, audited, and so forth and so on. But generally speaking, they want to know enough to be able to say from a fiduciary, and keep in mind, a board of director is personally fucking liable. There's personal liability there. It is not a joke. A lot of people want to like board hop and get on these big boards and they have no idea the fact that you might meet once, you might meet uh, 10 times a year, once a month at the end of the month or something like that, depending on when board meetings are. And you might meet for the entire day. There is a tremendous amount of work and experience and knowledge that needs to go into these things because guess what? Something goes south, you board are personally liable. You can be sued for this. Wow. Personally. What type, what type of uh, pitches are, are, are shared with the board? Like decision making, I should say. All decision-making. So effectively speaking, um, every like major strategic plan that you're rolling out, they're involved in. And generally speaking, they're updated on all uh, all effects. Now, depending on your board members and your your business and your board oversight, they, might, they may want granularity in plan. Maybe mm -hmm. they're really concerned about a strategic initiative. They want to know down to the, you know, the people doing the, the grunt work how, how things are going. 
Or they may say, hey, look, we trust the CEO. We have bigger fish to fry. We're more worried about the broader financial impacts. Is it only for public companies or also private companies too? Both. Now, when you're at a public company, there's obviously more insight and oversight because as a public company, you're required to file with the SEC. You have a lot of public documents that must be filed at a certain time period. And a lot of that requires public disclosure. If you're in a private company, you should have a board of directors. As a matter of fact, you're required to. Now, you could have a single member board of director right. being just you as the owner. But even private companies that are large have a board of directors. Right. If you go from small cap to mid cap to large cap, right? Certainly. Yeah. But if you're not publicly traded, the burden on you from a regulatory perspective is a lot less. What that really comes down to is this. At the end of the day, corporate governance is a very, very critical part of the system. I'm wearing shorts tonight. And for those of you on YouTube, you get to see my lovely thighs. Hashtag blessed. Yeah. Everyone saw your ass earlier. Don't. They did see my ass earlier. So ass and thighs tonight. Great. I mean, it goes in line with the whole, like, you know, Brazilian BBL thing. So many jokes. So many jokes. Okay. So corporate governance is a very critical part of every corporation in America. And just fun fact, if you own a company just on your own, you still have to maintain bylaws and have an annual meeting of the shareholder, or even if you're the only shareholder. Why? Because you want to treat the company as a company and you don't want someone to sue you to get to your personal assets. You don't want them to pierce the corporate veil and be able to sue you personally. So you have to treat the company like a company and you have to hold these meetings even if you're the only person that's in them. Right. It's just a requirement. And often mistaken by early entrepreneurs. Yes. So now we know OpenAI's position. Altman himself had no equity in the company, further diminishing his influence in the board. What does that mean? It means that he really didn't have any ownership. So if he doesn't have any ownership, how does that d diminish you know, his responsibilities or his value, if you will? Well, his voting rights. He can't vote to sway the board one way or the other as shareholders. So typically speaking, if there's a disagreement at the board level, you can go to a shareholder vote or right. the shareholders have to vote on certain things the board does anyway. Right. He doesn't have an ability to sway that with a large ownership. Typically speaking, founders will hold a lot. A great example is Mark Zuckerberg over at Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is one of those early uh, founders, right? And people are like, well, why is Mark still there? He sucks. I want to get rid of him. He has structured the voting rights of Meta in such a way that he can never be fired by the board. Wow. Questionably unethical, questionable like business tactics, but even Evan Spiegel over Snapchat, a lot of these early founders did this through some very sophisticated and complicated legal and corporate governance structure. But effectively means that they're in place until such time as they don't want to be in place anymore. Right. I can it's almost impossible to get rid of them. I can see how that power can get abused. But I can also see the other side of it where if I'm a guy who created a company that grew to something like that, mm -hmm. I, I don't, this is my baby. I want to make sure I take care of this thing. Yeah, but every, not every co-founder is meant to run a large publicly traded company. Right. There, there is a very big difference between founding a company, growing it in theory in this majestical, whimsical period of time where you're building, mm -hmm. and actually doing things like reporting publicly and being the face in front of the media. Right. And not every co-founder can make that transition. And don't don't smoke weed on Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. Yeah, probably not the best thing for your stock price. Not Zuck, but yeah, Elon. <sighs> Still hard not. I mean, he is the richest man in the world. <laughs> Some shit he was doing was doing right. That's a level of I don't give a fuck that I, I would like to reach one day. I mean, he can afford it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's 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 what it is. Well, uh, this allowed the board to essentially oust Altman without the consent of some of the OpenAI's largest investors. And despite the fact that he delivered rapid financial success for the company and sent its valuation soaring. As a matter of fact, it is now on the record that after he was fired. We now know that one minute before everybody else found out, Microsoft got the call. One minute. Wow. They were told one minute before the world found out that, that, he, was, that he was terminated. 
there was an automatic revolt internally. There was about 770 employees. 700 of them signed a petition saying they would walk out the door if he wasn't brought back. So within 24 hours, OpenAI and their board are trying to get Sam Altman back. He actually posted a picture of him wearing a guest badge to his own company mm -hmm. saying it was the first and last time he would wear it. And then by the time Monday rolled around, Microsoft had announced that they had hired him and his president, former president of the company, who is former co-founder, their OpenAI's temporary CEO, which I believe was their CIO, mm -hmm. had bailed. And now they're bringing in the former CEO of Twitch to run the platform. OpenAI. And OpenAI. And OpenAI's board, the nonprofit board, has said that they didn't feel that his candor, that he it was giving them the proper candor. Meaning that he wasn't being fair, forthcoming and truthful with everything that he was doing. Mm. It's kind of the suggestion. My theory here. Let's get to the theory. Is that. The biggest fear with AI is its own self-awareness. If it can do things independent of our control, and it's more than just an algorithm, it's conscious. Mm -hmm. If that happened inside OpenAI and he knew about it and didn't tell the board, and the board's probably freaking the fuck out going like, holy shit, we have a living thing now. Right. What do we do? There's an ethical problem. We need to slow down. Stop, stop, stop. And maybe he decided not to stop because the interest of the company is growing it. Right. There, that's definitely one, one thing that everyone should be concerned about. Something else that everyone should be concerned about. So like we talked about earlier, there's two camps here, right? There's the techno optimist that really thinks that we should keep going. Less regulation is better for this right now, right? And there's the other one that says we need to peel it back, implement regulation, right? The camp that believes in the techno optimist, right? That is a very capitalistic mindset and approach. The fear could also very, very well be that big businesses could start implementing a lot of the thoughts or a lot of the things that get carried out with OpenAI, right? Yeah. And and if the, if that if it does in fact get influenced, you can see how something like OpenAI could be corrupted and no longer trusted and valued if if, if it starts to get out that big business is really controlling this. Well, and there is an open API. Mm -hmm. Into open AI, yeah, which allows companies to utilize open AI's artificial intelligence to conduct business activity with them. A great example is Canva. You can plug a Canva open API into by just selecting in the drop down menu for ChatGPT4, and then you can actually query in ChatGPT4 Canva's like selection of material and have it automatically pick and create Canva projects for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, you and I were playing around with ChatGPT before creating images with the Dolly integration where Amazing. it created images based on our request. And we frequently use them for social media on our YouTube channel, which you should check out all the time. So, I mean, this is interesting from a business perspective too. Uh, Rune, scroll down to the next part so I can show the, the corporate structure. But essentially, Microsoft has been able to acquire OpenAI for $0. Right. Well, I mean, they, they paid $13 billion to invest. So right, enough, but, enough of a reason for Sam Altman to be like, yeah, I, I see. I get that you guys see where this can go. I'll go over there. So in the latest update, uh, the quoting from the uh, Instagram page that uh, Arun just pulled up called Chart, excuse me, Chart Daily. Everyone trying to rip Chart of the Day, bro. Well, I mean, it's just it's just a good thing. But this is a great chart. Uh, OpenAI's unusual corporate structure gave the board complete control. And uh, if Arun and I do our job right, I can go like this and show it to you. Uh, that being said, you can see the board of directors sits over OpenAI Inc., which is a 501c3, a nonprofit. 
It has wholly owned and controlled OpenAI Chat GP or OpenAI GP LLC, which also controls the subsidiary company, which is a holding company. And then below all this is OpenAI Global LLC, which is the for-profit company. And you can see this weird structure, but essentially this explains why the board sits over everything as a nonprofit and can make that. So decision. why is this uncommon? What is it normally like? Normally the board of directors would sit over the for-profit company. Okay. And anybody who invested into the for-profit company would get a board seat there. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's this kind of intermediary period in between where the, the, and I guess it's supposed to be like a moral compass decision, but this is the problem is a board can very much act against you as a founder. But, and which is crazy because part, this was partially his idea to have it implemented this way. Yes, it was. Right. So, cause he very much understood early on the risk associated and he wanted to make sure that he was very careful in his decision-making. So he had this put in place now, why they ousted him is, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're being as transparent. They're, that's the irony here is I don't think the board or Sam is being transparent, even though their accusation of him was being less than forthcoming with information. Right. Well, he has to be very careful, right? He can't come out because he could be personally liable. There is some stuff here we do not know, but yeah. let's let's finish on with it. let's finish off rapidly in the interest of time. Uh, this last quote from Chart Daily: uh, Control Alt Delete. It's been a chaotic few days for OpenAI, the artificial intelligence giant behind ChatGPT. In the last 72 hours, co-founder and CEO Sam Altman was shock-fired by the board. A new term, <laughs> shock-fired. Shock Chief Technology Officer Mira Murati was appointed as the interim CEO. Momentum to reinstate Altman gathered steam. The board reportedly agreed to reverse the decision in principle. Negotiations faltered and Emmett Shear, Arun, if you could scroll down. Altman fell asleep. Yeah, he's back there <laughs> sleeping his ass off. Yeah. A co-founder of video streaming platform Twitch is the new interim CEO with Altman taking a role at the one and only Microsoft. In the latest twist, 505 out of the 700 AI employees have signed a letter. It's now actually up to 700 Yep. Uh, out of 770, threatening to quit unless the board resigns. How a company like OpenAI could be plunged into such chaos is partly down to its unique corporate structure. Following the company's structure from top to bottom reveals that the board of directors had ultimate control to make decisions over both the nonprofit and for-profit open AI entities, right. leaving anchor investor Microsoft blindsided by Altman's exit just a minute before the public announcement. And I believe in most in most cases where there's a nonprofit board, right? And not in most cases, but in some cases, you have situations where the board members don't really have the knowledge base behind, you know, the company itself or the technology, right? It's usually spread out and diverse. Yeah. In this case, these people actually know. So when they ousted him, part of me believes that they truly believe that what's best for the company is, you know, the, to put more regulation in. Yeah, so I would point out that the board is made up largely of scholars and people that with more of an educational collegial background. Yes, which could lead to some of the the moral kind of compass issues that that are probably looming there. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it is not uncommon. So you would think, okay, a bank board will have nothing but bankers on it. It's actually rare to have a banker on it. If anything, you have a former retired banker who's got banking experience, but you have someone with accounting background, someone with legal background, someone with an IT background. Mm -hmm. You kind of want this diversification of backgrounds because you don't need the subject matter expertise. You need people that have oversight management experience in certain topics that are relevant. So they're not going to be this ubiquitous, I know everything expert, subject matter expert, right? This is why you can have the, the CEO of Revlon on the board of Pepsi-Cola, for example, right? Ron Perlman. Mm -hmm. um, the company that was launched, uh, ChatGPT, less than a year ago, claims that its structure is designed to develop artificial 
general intelligence that's safe and benefits all of humanity. With the capped profit arm of OpenAI's first introduction in 2019, able to issue equity and raise capital to further work uh, uh, of the original, and sorry, to the, to the further work to the work of the original nonprofit that was established in 2015. First time I fucked up reading tonight, by the way. Mm. Emmett Shear has made a name for himself in the AI world by advocating for industry slowdowns and safeguarding, making him an appealing Altman alternative for the board at OpenAI even as dozens of OpenAI employees and key board members take to X, formerly Twitter, to show their support for Altman. Yeah, man. So this is still developing. There's for sure going to be more we're going to hear in the coming days. After I listened to probably half of that interview with him on Rogan. He's such a likable guy. And he's intelligent. Yeah. Incredibly intelligent. Yeah. And he's not like that likable, like, he's not like... SPF. FTX, yeah. It's not like <laughs> Sam Bankman, like, ah, I'm rich. Ah. Yeah, come on, Tom Brady. Let's yeah, hang out. Yeah, I'm a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> not that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> burrito? It just sounds like a Sam Bankman fried statement. Yeah. <laughs> Chimichanga. Chimichanga. <laughs> Perfect example. Perfect. Great. Yeah. Everybody loves a chimmy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it takes Saeed out because you guys did not grace us. With reviews, we have no other choice but to play a clip like the one that Arun is about to play, which I thought would appeal to Saeed. Knowing that you've transitioned from a barber to another barber, and you've got a little bit of a low low going up top. It's growing out a little bit, right? It's been about a week and a half. And because I know that you're worried about this male pattern baldness, I want you to know that there is still part of the shaving experience that you can expect to continue to develop and love. Even though your hair is going away. Take us out. Let's go. Beautiful. Hey, before you get out of here, do you want me to do your balls for you? <coughs> I'm sorry, what? The balls. You want me to touch them up down there? Come on, stop kidding around. I'm not kidding around, David. These are new services we offer here. You can come in for a shave, get a haircut, drink some complimentary bourbon, and if you like, we can shave your balls for you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of something I prefer to do at home, you know? Hey. Suit yourself. Me, personally, I like to get another man down there. Survey the grounds, as they say, you know? They say that? Hey, I mean, think of it this way. Women get waxed down there, right? There's a whole industry for it. Why can't a man get shaved by a professional? It's blatant sexism. I mean, this is an all-inclusive shop, David. We accept That's, everybody here. Uh, I mean... Hey, buddy, I'm sorry. We're about to close. Oh, sorry, I didn't see the time. I really just came in to get the balls done. I didn't see the time. I, I just came in with the balls done. Come on, man. That's not, I mean, why? Why is this out there yet? Is that why you're paying 170 Chris? Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> That's what you're doing, huh? You guys don't get your balls done? <laughs> don't get my balls done, man. No. <laughs> That's what that back room at Andy's place is for. I haven't been to that one. Oh. Oh. oh okay. Oh. That makes a lot of sense. Makes some sense. I understand. Don't that. make dollars. It don't make sense. It does make balls. There you go. Don't be sexist. Oh, dude, I miss you tonight, man. I, want, I need you to chime in a little bit more. All right. We really didn't shut the fuck up the entire night. This guy was ready. He's checked out. He's like, I'm on the plane already. Yeah, he was there. He was right. there. I announced that in two of my meetings today. I was like, guys, I'm already checked out. Yeah. You can't do that and not be a D-bag, Arun. That's a D-bag thing. That's a very villain. A that's a very villain move. Okay. That's like that's like Elon Musk and guys, I I sorry, I wasn't listening. I'm too rich. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, Can you do me a favor? I've actually never looked this up. Can you just quickly pull up? I want to see what Belize looks like. Have you ever seen photos of Belize? I've been there. You have? Yeah. Also hard. Yeah. Let me see A this. friend of mine when I was in school wow. from Belize, yeah. Man, this is where you're going, huh, Odin? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It's like Catalina, too. Um, They don't allow cars, so you get a golf cart when you get there. 
Like that. Lots of mosquitoes, though, dude. Yeah, you're, you're going to get fucking mauled. Yeah, what is he going to come back with? Yeah. Isn't there a bridge? You can drive there, right? From where? Uh, from, like, Mexico. Like, you go down south. Just, Mexico, just yeah. keep going south? Yeah. I think there's, like, a way, like, you can drive. I need this there. photo of, of you right here. <laughs> Welcome, please. Yeah. Remember the photo you took of me going to Albuquerque? I still have it, yeah. I'm going to post it on my stories now for, yeah. because you mentioned it. Beautiful island, though. You have a good time. All right. You got anything, Odin? Nope. You got anything, Chris? No, nope, not really. I'm, I'm good. Leave us an honest five-star review, goddammit. Or we'll talk about shave balls again. Yeah. <laughs> Your choice. Your choice. Good night, everybody. Bye. Mm-hmm.